Welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybel Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here once again with Howard Tybel. Howard? Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon to you. Tis a fine day, a fine day to talk about controversial subjects, don't you think? Yeah, we're going to go right to it, aren't we? Before we dig in, uh, head over to TybalInc.com to learn more about our work in education. Subscribe to the show for free. Just click on that blue button, and we will let you know every time a new episode is released. Of course, you can find Howard. You may want to find Howard after this episode, at Howard Tybal on Twitter. Uh, And I'm, I'm sure he's waiting with Twitter in his hand right now. Uh, I will. You know what? You are you are always a step ahead of me, Pete. <laughs> Twitter's open. There you go. All right. Here's the, here's the conversation. All right. Who do we have on the show? Scott Carlson is an award-winning senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education, where he has been contributing to our field since 1999 across a range of issues, college management and finance, the cost and value of higher education, planning, sustainability, so much more. So far, whenever we have mentioned that Scott was going to join us on the show, we have heard an immediate and resounding, oh, he's great. <laughs> Today, Scott joins us to talk about his recent feature, Should Everyone Go to College?, published in the Chronicle on May 1st, which has sparked some valuable discussion. Link in the show notes if you want to keep up. Scott Carlson, welcome to Navigating Change. Thanks so much for having me here. This, uh, so I, you know, I say it has sparked some valuable uh, discussion. I imagine there are other words we might swap out for discussion. Yeah, in terms of this uh, this topic, and, and as I uh, have said to Scott and to you, is that when I saw this from the Chronicle, th- you know, I'm I'm often finding myself, Scott, leading groups around difficult conversations, and you know, it's one of the reasons why you bring in an outsider is that they can often say the tough thing or they can they can raise the tough issue, and this is one of those conversations that everybody sort of rightfully shies away from because it raises tough issues. So I'm curious, first of all, and I know you've got some other pieces, and we're going to actually promote some of those other pieces too that that sort of build off of this, and you've got some other work around this I know is coming out. What have been, what has been some of the reactions you have been hearing from folks around raising this should everyone go to college? Do you have anything to share with us about this, or can we, can we not speak about them over the airways? You know, uh, surprisingly positive, actually. I thought that Good. I thought that I was going to get hammered on this one, yeah. um, I, uh, and I did get one note from the president of a small college uh, whom I'd worked with before, who objected to the headline. She didn't mm. she didn't like the idea that we were pigeonholing um, or 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 picking out poor kids as being the 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 ones who should uh, have well, special consideration for right? this. Yeah. Right? The, yeah. 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 And, well, and, 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 and to be to be fair, the subheading, just to be clear, the, the subheading is for poor kids. College for all isn't the mantra it was meant to be. OK, but I think that's I think that's true. I think that's actually true because I think that rich kids have the cushion or at least kids of moderate, moderate wealth, moderate income have a bit more of the cushion that enable them to be able to take the risk. I think for for low income students, it's a particularly risky option if 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 they're not prepared. And there's all sorts of, as you were saying, there's all sorts of nuance in this conversation. You know, I'm not in the article, just for people out there who haven't read the article, I'm not saying that low-income kids or poor kids shouldn't go to college. That's not what we're saying. But sort of what I say in the article is, um, if you're a low-income kid, if you're unprepared for college-level work, you might want to consider other ways to ascend into that world um, through, through work, through stackable credentials, through other things. Well, you know, that gets me right to the conclusion in your article. So you got Anthony uh, Carnival, director of Georgetown University Center of Education in the workforce, saying, I think, a profound uh, sort of 
complimentary comment about this idea of whether you're a, re a realist and idealist, right? And mm -hmm. an, an, an idealist, is, as you framed it, as he talked about it, is somebody who is looking at this idea of college for all, while the realist is looking at it as let's let's look at really what's possible. But he raises around this issue of job training in this final comment is that if we're going to go down that road of being a realist, that there are alternatives that would allow you to be successful in the world and not get a four-year degree, mm -hmm. there needs to be a way of packaging this to make it politically acceptable. And yep. I'm curious what you took away from either that comment from him or how you framed it. What do you mean by politically acceptable? It, it goes back to this whole discussion of tracking. So tracking in the United States was this institution within the education system that was separating and dividing students, young, young kids, students uh, in the K-12 system, um, and sending some, uh, putting some on a college track and then putting others on sort of a more middle skills track or a, a, a sort of a lower skills track. Um, you might, I, when I was in K-12, it was sort of the last days of, of, of auto shop. And I still remember there were a number of students I went to school with who uh, would leave halfway through the day and head down the street to the Votech or would spend half the day uh, at my high school, they still had, they actually still had a place where they were building and repairing cars. So they would spend part of the time there. And there was kind of a sense that, you know, those, those kids, they're poorer kids. They're kids who are not really on, on the path that the rest of us are. And, you know, that path that the rest of us are could be, could be considered actually a bit of a joke. And I can get into that in a little bit later, <laughs> but you know, they were, they were sort of thought of kids that were going for something less, right? And I think we still have a hangover from that. Oh, completely. From that, from that era. So you, you look at kids who go to um, sort of career-oriented, into career-oriented programs, and you think, well, that's nice for him, you know, it's, but it's not college, whatever college means. Oh, and if you talk to parents, I'll tell you this, this biased a bias against community college. It has that, that's sort of the modern day version. Because uh, I've also talked to leaders who work in community colleges. And when they talk to their peers who work for private institutions or research, they feel that they're being looked down upon. That we yeah. are doing a disservice to those by not yes. encouraging them so stringently to go to a traditional college. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, given that the college atmosphere is so tiered, I think it's, I think it's a bit dishonest, right? Because yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story here. Um, I, I, this topic has been on my mind for some time. It's it been on my mind for about two or three or four years before I actually got around to writing the article. And it, it came from, you know, some of, some of the thinking behind the article came from a number of comments I'd seen in the Chronicle over time, you know, where we had professors saying, oh, you know, what, you know what the problem is in higher education is that we're getting too many kids in higher education who aren't prepared for the work and they shouldn't be coming to, to colleges, right? I have a background having grown up, um, I, I studied German culture for a long time and, and the German language from when I was a little kid. And so I knew a lot about uh, the gymnasium and Hochschule programs uh, in Germany where they, they have this very uh, much more strict tracking program there. And last year, last spring, I was spending time with a friend of mine from the Netherlands. And um, he was single in the United States. And so spending a lot of time at bars and talking to you know, talking to people, young people like himself. And he said, you know, he, he came up to me at one point and he was like, you know, you have all these people that I meet here who say they go to university, but they are as dumb as a box of rocks. You know, they, they have no idea 
what what's going on. In my country, if you say that you're going to university, that means that you've passed all of these tests. You have, you know, you're considered among the elite um, from an intellectual point of view. Mm-hmm. And you could argue, you could say, well, that that's uh, that culture is cutting off opportunities for people. But at some level, he was he was right about one thing, and that that is our perception of what college is. We call all these things college. We call the third tier private institution college. We call the sort of the mid level um, the mid level state institution college. We call Harvard University college. But they're three very different very different places serving very different sort of capacities for uh, academic study, and that's why I say you know. <laughs> We look down on these these students who uh, go to auto shop and say, "Well, there's something else. They're not they're not like us. We're going to college." Well, the story today, I would say that the, the commensurate story in our culture is that the BA getting a Bachelor of Arts is something that we've been sold that everybody needs to have, and the equivalent elite in this case is if you're going for your doctorate in this culture. Yeah, but everybody needs to be. I mean, there is no more alternative. Besides an education uh, for for your degree and this perception that and what I can tell you from my kids and their peers, the 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 root among those of us and again there's there's a whole population of 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 adult learners that make up a vast majority of those going to education experience. But we're not most of us who are raising younger kids do not get to experience that that college means much more than the four year degree. Yeah. However, this 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 view of community college, as I mentioned before, is that the the this is an a, a way to actually get your feet wet so that you can get into college. Now it's into the four year program, and, and it's all about cost savings. It seems to me that the key question is, and you frame this in the article, is that you said that not all students thrive in academics. Can schools and colleges fairly present and value an array of educational employment pathways while still offering late-blooming learners a chance at a four-year college and beyond? The challenge is figuring out at crucial junctures who should go which way. It seems to me everybody, would, I would guess, would agree with this idea, and I'm curious what the two of you think of this, That's not a question of whether you should go to college, but that if you've got the aptitude, if you've got the interest, that the availability of college is there for you. Yes. Right? It's it's not I mean it, it, what, what I think is difficult about this conversation Scott is it, it feels like it's hard for me. I feel like it, that I'm being elitist. For those for me to say that anybody shouldn't be able to go to college, who am I to say that? I'm in no position to judge and I almost feel like I can't be the one to raise that and I think that a, a lot of us who have been invested in higher education uh, find themselves really reluctant to even raise this question because we feel like we, we are not the ones that can be saying this because we've been afforded the opportunity to go to college. So who am I to say that I can't that, – that of anybody shouldn't have that access? But the problem is that it, in a culture where that, that cost is increasingly on the backs of individual students themselves, where students who are really unprepared for college, even if they're going to community college – um, are going to go for a time and then find it to be di- find it to be too difficult and drop out. Right. That 
that's not really presenting a, a real choice or it's a good not. choice for those students. Well, and, and it, it, we are systemically cultivating a culture of shame on the backs of those students, too. Students who are not ready to be in the classroom, who can't afford to be in the classroom, who aren't finding the right fit in a four-year college classroom, but feel because of this societal expectation that there is no hope for them if yeah. they don't tr- get through to the other side of this thing. And that, I think, gets to you know the, the nut of, what, uh, of, of the change that I would love to see. And, and I, you know, I'm coming at this as somebody who is in the classroom, right? I am teaching these people who are really struggling with the systems in place and the shame that they carry as a result of the struggles that they, that they and, are and facing. And by the way, Pete, that's not just people that come from uh, lower socioeconomic no, status. No, exactly. Right? That is... I know kids that, uh, my, you know, that in my life that are uh, children of, of peers of mine who struggle with this idea that if I if I can't step up into this, I am truly being left behind. And 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 for many of them, it's not that they don't have the ability or or the access. Their parents can afford it. It's that they don't feel like there's a really good alternative. And even community college is treated like it's a second class prize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, you know, when I was talking about my friend from the Netherlands, I mean, many of the many of the students he was meeting at these bars were students who were going to decent public colleges and who came from. Uh, or private colleges, and came from relative amounts of money. I mean, I, I think what's what's knocking these kids off the college path often for, when they're coming from low-income backgrounds is sometimes preparation. I mean, they're going to high schools that are right that just don't have the resources, so they're not getting the kinds of backgrounds in uh, chemistry, pre-calc, uh, trigonometry, and so so on, things that they'll need to step into challenging majors in college. That's one thing. The other thing that's knocking them off the path, and this has been part of the series that we've been doing on inequality in higher education, are all the other costs not, not associated with, not directly associated with college. It's gas, food, rent, uh, childcare, um, right, right. you know, all these other things. That's, that often is what is knocking these kids off the path in college. So where, in your research, where are you finding some hopes or a sense that there are either institutions or individuals who are having the conversation in the right way because uh, it feels a bit like the nature of this conversation, as you dig into it, we, it becomes even more tragic than, than, than it is on the surface. Like the more we look at it, the more we realize that there isn't a pathway through this conversation. Uh, there's more in questions to ask before we understand how we're going to get through it. Are you seeing some glimmers of hope where people are having the right conversations uh, to move this in a direction that creates the sense that there's that there's more options than than fewer. Yes, I think we're seeing that uh, more and more these days. So I think, um, and this I'm pulling a little bit from memory, but uh, in Virginia, uh, the state government of Virginia had made moves recently to make high school uh, more of a direct path into career. Um, so they wanted to give students there, the kinds of skills they might need, if they wanted them, to uh, head directly from, uh, from high school into some sort of money-producing job. Um, the state of Washington, from what I've seen, has been doing a lot of work on this, particularly the state workforce board that's there, which works with uh, labor unions, employers, and uh, state education uh, agencies. Um, I was in Washington not too long ago, and I visited uh, a high school in Toppenish, Washington, which is on the Yakima Indian Reservation uh, in the Yakima Valley. And 
this high school uh, has adopted career and technical education, which is sort of the newfangled term for vocational education. Um, yep. They've adopted yep. career and technical education as a sort of pillar of what they are offering the students at this particular high school, which is 85% Latino. And you go around this high school and you talk to the students there, and many of them will tell you, yeah, my parents never got out of sixth grade. Uh, they, they migrated here when uh, they were younger. Um, they spend their days either working in construction or they work in the hop fields in the Yakima Valley or they pick fruit. Um, and the students, you know, the hope is that the students will aspire for something greater. What the, what the uh, high school has found is that when they started offering uh, career and technical education, it, it, it had a way of stimulating the interests of the students to go on to college, to, to go for something else. And it, 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 had a, it, it prepared them better for college. The kids who were in CTE courses performed better on the STEM tests in high school than the non-CTE students did. So now all the students at the high school have to take at least two CTE courses before they graduate. Um, the, the effect of this has been, um, you know, I talked to this student uh, named Omar Palomino. His father had come from Mexico. His, both his father and mother had come from Mexico. They had bit by bit built this, um, this business taking junked cars and fixing them up. They had basically had a junkyard, a boneyard for old cars. And um, he was heading into ninth grade and he thought, you know, I, I'm not going to go to college because in my culture, in Latino culture, um, you know, your parents need you to work. You need to sort of be there for the family. And he said, you know, I'm just, maybe I'll get through high school. I don't know if I will, but I'm, I'm, I, I really just want to go to work for my family. And uh, they, he started taking CTE courses as the high school assigned. And he got into a robotics course and he found that he had sort of an aptitude for building these robots and, and making them run and for programming them. He, invented, he eventually took something like 50th, uh, in the top, he scored somewhere in the top 50 for, in robot programming at a contest that had more than 15,000 students at it. He was approached by UW Seattle. He was flown to uh, Washington, D.C. to talk about his experience in CTE courses. And now this kid who didn't want to go to college, wasn't even sure he was going to graduate from high school, is going to be going to Washington State University at Pullman for mechanical engineering to uh, get into a program to learn how to design automotive. So, so I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing story. But what does that tell you? So when you, when you, when you think about that, what does that uh, lead you to think that we need to be thinking more about? If you want, we're talking about this at the college level, but I don't necessarily know that the problem is at the college level. I think it might be at the K-12 level. And what's happening at the K-12 level is that what they liked about the CTE programs at, at Toppenish was that it, it got kids out of this sort of pointless um, uh, uh, consume and then regurgitate uh, form of education, this, this test, this sort of testing-oriented uh, uh, education. It got them into this thing where they had to think about projects that had open-ended solutions and made them think creatively about what the what the end products would be or how they would get to the, how they would get to the solution there. That's really more how life is. And yet we're in a K-12 education system that is all about drill and kill. It's all about, let's just test the crap out of these, these kids all the time, make them regurgitate facts that they're really going to, at one level, they're not really going to use um, uh, at some level. And, and then at another level, they don't, they don't really understand the purpose of that. I mean, a lot of these students are like, I don't get it. Why am I doing this? Sure. this well, you know, what's interesting about this is that when you talk to higher ed people about what you just, just described, we, we want kids to come in more prepared, that they're 
that we flip the classroom. And I work with lots of schools who are having these conversations at the higher ed level. They're saying, and this is where the tension is. We have this method for evaluating whether a student can cut it here. And the metric they use is basically the SAT and the GPA or the ACTs. So it's one of these catch-22s is that the the, the K through 12 is looking for the higher ed community to sort of reinvent how they're going to measure success. And the higher ed community on some level is waiting for the K through 12 to sort of reinvent preparing the new kids. And they're not coming together and having these conversations to, at the table. And, and in the absence of this, it's going to be very hard to create a sustainable, larger available uh, opportunity for more people if the way we measure success in both those domains don't shift and, and figure out together how we're gonna how we're gonna reinvent that. That's true. However, I, I, I think that at some level we might be we may be measuring the wrong things. So I think success in college has to do less with the tests, although I think the tests are can be a good indicator and I, I mean there's there's history behind that and there are there's data behind that. Um, but I think success in college has more to do with your resources while you're in college. Um, you know, I can look at my own example uh, for this. You would say that I was, I'm a fairly successful person at what I'm doing. And fortunately, I, at some early point, found out that I wanted to be a writer. And I wanted to think about these ideas and, you know, explore them in essays. Um, I was a terrible, terrible high school student. Terrible high school student. Um, so bad, in fact, that I didn't get into college my first time around. Um, but what I had was resources. You know, my, um, my parents are well off. Um, I, was, I had the space to fail and to recover from that failure. Yep. Um, and in my journey through college, I had the space to be able to explore and to be able to take risks and uh, engage in learning opportunities that would um, cultivate me into a person who would become successful. The problem is that those, those opportunities, even the opportunity to get into college on a second or third try, um, are, are sort of diminishing. Um, the, the window of success, the road to success, and the problems associated with failure um, or the, or the um, uh, sort of the pitfalls associated with failure are, I think, much more, uh, much more dangerous now than they used to be. Tony Carnavali and I talked about this um, about a year ago when I did a story about failure uh, in higher education. And I talked to a student who came from a wealthy background who failed out of, out of the College of Worcester. And I talked to a, a student from Baltimore City Community College who came from nothing and who was, who not because of his grades, but because of other problems in his life, um, was failing out of college. So the, the, the kid from Baltimore City Community College had a much more difficult road. Well, it's an interesting because that came to mind for you when I was raising this issue of how we measure success and, and what you digress to, which I think is a really – it's an interesting comment because it, to me that has more to do with when we reflect back on how do we get through it. I think that you're absolutely right. I had 
a safety net. I had a mechanism where I could fail multiple times and mm-hmm. I could still be successful. And, and, you know, the truth is this is what I'm espousing to adults. And I think we say to our kids is that the way you're going to learn is by failing, failing and then, and then learning how to regroup or rebound. And your point is it is getting increasingly difficult for younger people uh, because uh, partly because of the increasing cost to go in and fail. And those of us who have greater resources available to it, whether it's support, whether it's family, whether it's money, those are the bigger determinants. You know, the institutions themselves are having conversations, especially the larger ones, around retention as such an important measure for them to get a handle on so they can continue to be viable financially. And the retention issue is challenging because they've got a pool of faculty. There are there are camps of faculty that say, admit them if they have the skills and don't admit them if they don't. And you have administrators saying, we can't limit, or we because of financial issues, we can't limit the number of students we have we don't want to. So therefore, we need you as faculty to do a better job of helping with the remedial education. Uh-huh. And... This is this is the institutional perspective about how to get them through. You, you're speaking on a much more personal basis, and I think it's a it's a key factor that I, I see this as a as a core dilemma because I'm not sure how you get around what you just raised. The, the, how do you how do you make well? You have to find a way to make resources more available, and I think on some level you're talking about financial resources, but not entirely. No, no. I, I would also say. Um, uh, making more appeals to the intrinsic talents, intrinsic talents and interests of students. So uh, another thing that might get, and I want to return to your, I want to return to your retention uh, issue there in a moment, but uh, you know, when I think about the issue of trying to cultivate talent and interest among students, um, I think about a a speech that I saw at one of these higher education conferences some years ago where I saw um, where they had a, a guru a management guru come and talk as sort of the opening plenary speaker. And he was supposed to be sort of this inspiring person. And it was, you know, he'd written a book like the seven biggest mistakes managers make and whatever it was. Um, but there was a part of his talk that I thought was, was pretty interesting. And that was, you know, he said the biggest mistake that managers make when they're, when they're managing people is they, they have sort of a, uh, a roster of people who work for them. And they've got say Bob here, who's a great talker, uh, loves to sell products, loves to get out there and talk to people, but he's not really good with um, he's not really good with the numbers. Like he doesn't he never gets his budgets in on time. He's, he's you know he, he can never you know qu- quite quite hit the numbers. Um, but he's he's great. He's, his interpersonal relationships are great. You've got Mary, who's a wonderful creative thinker, but um, uh, you know but she kind of sticks to herself. She's she doesn't really get out there. And you've got Rick, who's uh, he's great with the numbers. Um, uh, and he can talk to people some, but he's not terribly creative. He's kind of a bean counter. And he said the problem with management is that management looks at these with these three people, and they say they all have to fit this sort of ideal, uh, this sort of ideal for an employee, right? They all have to be good at all these three things that we just right. mentioned, you know. Right. And he said what, what we should be doing as managers <laughs> is we should be looking at our roster of employees and saying, okay. Bob's good at talking to people. Let Bob go out and talk to all the people he wants to talk to. Generate right. business for the for the for us and don't don't make him worry about the numbers we'll have rick take care of that and in terms of coming up with ideas we won't let rick have to worry about that because you know we've got other employees over here who can do that mary or whatever and the problem is is that education doesn't do that particularly k-12 education doesn't do that they don't pick out students and they say wow for the most part they don't pick out students and say wow this kid over here he's really 
physical. He loves, you know, he's, he's really into sort of his body and he loves sports, but he's not great at math and he's sort of passable at English. We've got this kid over here who's like a total science nerd, but he doesn't have a creative bone in his body, you know? But they all sort of have to meet this, these standards that, that, that are set. And why, why, don't we, why don't we spend more time trying to home in, because this is what they're gonna do in college anyway, home in on what they're really good at and, and really pump those up, enhance those, and prepare that, uh, prepare them for launching in the world using those skills, those interests. Yeah. Um, the retention side of it, I, 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 I mean, I understand the, phys- the, the financial issues associated with retention. If a college can't keep its students, it, it does end up having financial problems. It doesn't look good for rankings and so on. But at some level, I feel like the retention question is more is more a problem that the colleges have from a reputation standpoint. It doesn't really have to do with the success of the student. At some level it does, because if they leave and they leave with debt and they don't come back, that's a bad thing. But you know, I knew a number of, kid, of students when I was in college, and I was one of these students, my wife was one of these students. We were, we didn't, it took us you know, eight, nine years to graduate from a four-year institution because we were constantly leaving to go do internships, constantly leaving to go work jobs so that we yes. could continue mm-hmm. to, 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 to go to school and graduate without debt. I think, I, I, we, I think we have to ask the question about retention, about who, th- those measurements, who's that serving? What's really important, and schools are slowly getting around to this, is that they need to uh, have better data to represent the different kinds of retention issues. Yeah. And it's a tracking issue. It's, it's, it's not just tracking them when they're there, but figuring out what happened when they left. They don't, schools don't do typically a good job of understanding why a kid either dropped out or chose to go to a different place. They know what why, why they came in. So this lack of data causes us to have uh, to put sort of a cookie cutter, one overarching view on this question of retention because I know from working with some faculty that they absolutely – there are stories out there and faculty would absolutely say who are committed to their students that the, the retention issue for them – the central issue there is about student success, and we frame the conversation around this retention piece because there's something to be said for losing 50% of your kids or 62% oh. of your kids yeah. after the first year. And as a, it, it, whether we like it or not, this is an industry and this is a business, and you can't run a business if. of what it is that generates your revenue leaves every year while the cost of it continues to rise. So, so, but it requires understanding the data behind the scenes and many schools don't have that. You know, so, so so what's interesting for me about this is that this whole conversation is that as I was anticipating getting into it, I was wondering if we're ever going to get to a point in the call, in this call or in this talk where we said, you know what, we figured it out. It feels (laughs) a little bit like, it feels a little bit like, we are we are opening a difficult conversation as a means to get people to minimally talk about this. You know, this is like again, this is not at all a fair comparison. But when I think about the race conversations, mm-hmm. that that to me is not about necessarily solving it, but getting people who have different perspectives, different backgrounds in history, to learn how to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. Because I think this is the missing piece in this dialogue too: is that faculty have a spectrum, a whole spectrum view on this. And instead of engaging them, we try to bring it down to sound bites, administrators, presidents. And we're living in such, it's such a decentralized industry, higher ed, 
that the challenge here is, I think, finding the institutions that are in different sectors within the industry and saying, all right, what are you guys doing well? I, mean, I love your comment, Scott, that we have to look into K-12. We can't pretend that this is just a higher education issue. It, it starts with how are we preparing these kids so that they can make those choices to enter. Uh, but I think it starts with having a dialogue. Yeah. And on the retention issue, if, if, if students are going to college and they're, and they're failing out and then failing out with debt, clearly that's a problem. Clearly that's a problem. But, um, uh, you know, there should be these other pathways. There should be, there should be a whole range of pathways that, that students can take that are valid. Um, and well, and just... it's one of those things. It's a market thing, too. I mean, there are two points here. Number one is, and to your point, Howard, um, it, you know, about how we're minimizing so many of these perspectives. It, you know, as a faculty member, it, we often get just sort of lumped into this, you know, oh, faculty are complaining because students aren't prepared again. And, and that's not really it. If you, if you really sit down and, with a faculty member and say, why is it upsetting to you that, that a portion of your students appear not to be prepared? It's because I'm not able to teach why I am here to teach the majority of my students because I'm having to teach things that that I expected they already knew. It's not that I don't want them to be successful. It's that I don't have the time because of the structure that we've set up to actually teach all these things. And so we've got to think about that. Think about what is the faculty need in the classroom to, to actually meet the demands of these students and make and sure they're prepared if they up, want to right? be there. Right. But the second is, is that this becomes sort of a market opportunity discussion, right? Isn't it, isn't there a horizon out there where these schools who have, who are really, you know, sort of part and partial to this, to this, the, the hierarchies of education can say, you know what, we actually think that there's room for a, a uh, uh, to speak in an extreme, uh, a Harvard of, of Votech. You know, we should be able to cater to students and give them the best uh, mechanic, uh, you know, education or the best HVAC education that we possibly can and serve these people so that the colleges, I'm trying to think in, in terms of the people who are listening to this, is there a market opportunity out here to rethink how we uh, address what is clearly an opportunity for people who don't, who who might not be ripe for a traditional four-year education. There might be there might be colleges that offer more than just that are traditionally offering four-year degrees, and that's all they offer. But then you might see more colleges in that space that are offering uh, certificate, more kinds yes. of certifications. Yes, more alternative kinds of... pathways to success. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so Scott, you know, as we move towards wrapping up this first of what I hope will be other conversations with you, uh, what I'm, what I'd love to hear from you is what, what was your hope, or what continues to be your hope, in raising these and and maybe even some future uh, articles you're going to write around these these elephant in the room or difficult conversations, especially this one about about it, it's deeper than affordability. It's it's a deeper question about how we think about what it means to become adults in the world or have what we need to be to feel good about ourselves in the world no matter what age we are. What is your hope in writing these things? In terms of my hope, I think what I'm – I have an editor who says uh, – you have a recurring theme in your work, and that is um, the recurring theme, no matter if I'm writing about inequality or, or some of the other things I've written about in the past, the recurring theme is we've lost our way. Um, and I, that's, that's, the, that's the issue I keep getting back to. And I think when, as it applies to this series of articles, I think we as a society have lost our way, and we're asking higher education to fix these problems that don't really reside in higher education. Tony Carnevale 
said um, to me when I was talking about this issue of college for all. He said, you know, if you ask educators how to fix the problem, um, how to fix problems, they will, the solution they will always offer is more education. But I think as a society, we, we've kind of looked at successful people in our society and we've seen that those, success, those successful people have a lot of education. But I think we've ignored the fact that the reason that they have a lot of education is because they had the means to acquire that education. They had um, the kind of preparation that we were talking about. They had the money. Um, they had um, you know, the resources to launch themselves. And um, I think that's something we're going to have to, that's sort of the big question we're going to have to grapple with eventually. Um, and I think at some point we're going to have to realize that that education in and of itself is not really the solution. It's definitely something we need. Ha uh, fixing this sort of problem we have in our society with civil discussions and um, civic engagement and, and these sort of softer skills, a, a love for the arts, uh, a, a love for culture. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that college is entirely the answer to our problems with um, income inequality, unemployment, and stagnant, uh, sort of stagnant wealth. Yeah, that very much, uh, it, it very much reeks of sort of 1960s kind of uh, post-GI Bill college for all thinking that hasn't been tested effectively. Yeah. 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 yeah, I love that you're sharing that because I think that you're raising something that c could easily get lost in the weeds is that we, we go to what's most obvious and what what most of us uh, superficially think is the answer, and I think you're asking deeper questions. Uh, and the question is, do you, who do we put together? How do we get a national conversation? Or even at an institution level, how do you get institution leaders to be talking about this more broadly? So I think that's what you're opening up, and that's what, that's what so drew me uh, to this conversation versus the typical, here are some financial aid strategies, or all the typical things we're looking that are that are – right in front of us, but really don't address the underlying issues. So, so I just want to say I really appreciate that you're, you're willing to put this out there and keep going. Thanks. Thanks, Howard. This Thanks has so been a great much. conversation, uh, Scott. Thank you so much for your time. Where would you like people to uh, find out more about you? I'm, I'm, uh, obviously, The Chronicle, uh, but where else? Is that or is that it? Do you want everybody to Facebook? Friends you on Facebook? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm actually very private on Facebook. I, I, I do have I do have a Twitter account, but I'm I'm completely inactive. Um, I don't know. I I I I just hope. I, you know what I hope is let's have a let's have that conversation. Let's let's get together at um at one of these higher education conferences, whether it's AGB or or Nakubo, if they'll if they'll do it. Um, and and have a have a broad conversation. If I, I love people that. in the room, man, I I might even see if I can find a way to pr promote that. Will you be at uh, the annual meeting this August in or this July in Montreal? Out of curiosity, uh, you will you will if you're invited, right? Is that the answer? I it it I have to look at my summer schedule, but okay. um, yeah, if I could if I could swing it, I would do it. Okay, cool. This is a it's a call to action. Should call be a good conversation. Action. Good meeting. Uh, thank you so much again, uh, Scott Carlson. We sure appreciate your time and attention today. Thank you so much. On behalf of Scott and Howard Tybel, I'm Pete Wright, and uh, thank you everybody for downloading. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybel Inc. Mm -hmm.